Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. leaders across New York are sounding the alarm about what they call a growing migrant crisis that they say the federal government is failing to address. Meanwhile, Governor Kathy Hochul says she's awaiting answers from the Biden administration. More from the Legislative Gazette's Karen DeWitt. The State Association of Counties' Steve Aquario says the state's counties are increasingly shouldering the burden of the influx of migrants over the southern border, a situation that's likely to intensify now that pandemic-era restrictions on border crossings have been lifted. And he says they need help now. They say the federal government should consider declaring a state of emergency and immediately release funds to states like New York that are bearing the brunt of the crisis. The current situation is is failing. The federal government is failing to address this crisis. We should have the basic information about the asylum seekers entering the state of New York so we could match housing needs, work needs, public assistance needs, mental health needs, legal concerns. The counties are asking the federal government to open military bases to house and feed the migrants. They say state government leaders, including Governor Kathy Hochul, need to step up and help resolve disputes that have arisen between New York City Mayor Eric Adams, a Democrat, and two Republican-led Hudson Valley counties, Orange and Rockland, where Adams planned to bus migrants to hotels. Rensselaer County Executive Steve McLaughlin, also a Republican, is one of a handful of county leaders who are prohibiting any municipality, hotel, or motel in their county from entering into a contract to house migrants. To say that there's a a plan would be a complete falsehood because the plan seems to be Eric Adams trying to dictate to the rest of the counties in New York how he's going to do things. And that just means shipping people here without any communication to these county leaders. It's unfair. It's arrogant. And it's completely inhumane to do that. Aquaria, with the Association of Counties, says the group is not blaming Hochul. He says the governor has written a letter to President Joe Biden, with whom she has a close professional relationship, asking for more help. But he says she could do more. I think the governor is in the position to quarterback this issue now. Hochul, speaking Monday at an unrelated news conference, says Biden and his aides have not yet answered her letter, written last Friday afternoon, and she's not concerned about that. But she says she's not sitting patiently by because New York City is at a breaking point. If more time goes on, uh, they'll certainly be hearing from me. I'll be paying a visit, uh, continuing my regular efforts to say, help us here. This is a humanitarian crisis. Hochul says she's working to coordinate the response between the city and the counties. She's deployed 1,500 National Guard members to help. And she says she's considering adding to the $1 billion that's already in the state budget to help care for the migrants. But so far, no one knows what those costs might be. 
The governor says the counties are not being asked to pay for anything, just to consent to allow hotels in their regions to contract with the city of New York to house the asylum seekers. Hochul says she's also asking the federal government to waive the 100-day waiting period for work authorization. She says the migrants want jobs and many upstate regions have a worker shortage. She says if they were able to become employed sooner, there'd be far less blowback from some county leaders over their arrival. The upstate elected officials who you would normally say perhaps they're not as open to this idea, if you said these individuals were ready to work and could work and go out to the farms and the hotels and the restaurants, their arms would be wide open. The county leaders say they've also asked Senate Majority Leader and New York Senator Chuck Schumer to waive the 100-day waiting period, but they say so far they haven't received an answer. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt. Listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Shartok spoke with Steve Newhouse, Republican Orange County Executive, this week about the issue of asylum seekers being sent to upstate counties, including Orange, by New York City Mayor Eric Adams. I think literally the um, current situation is just a reflection of um, just bad planning and I sit on the board of directors for the New York State uh, Association of County Executives. I'm the incoming president. And we sit at the table. We have at least biweekly Zoom calls. The mayor's office is on there. And not once did he say, I have an emergency. I need help, guys. What they did is they booked hotel rooms and basically commandeered the entire hotel, kicking out people that were either living there or had plans to do weddings or, you know, uh, some type of tourism-related issue. But they turned these hotels into where the intent was to turn them into homeless shelters. Uh, the, when the mayor contacted myself and the Rockland County executive, he told me he was going to be there for 30 days, and he's sending me uh, 60 uh, asylum seekers. I'm at 186. Uh, it's really – the situation is out of control, and I understand it's a very difficult situation. The federal government – needs to come up with a plan. They're ultimately at blame. But, you know, New York City asked to these folks, uh, my ho- homeless shelter is maxed out here in Orange County. So is my emergency housing. So uh, rather than just forcing themselves upon counties like Orange, they should have put the SOS out because there's other counties around the state that are willing and able to help. So I think it's a bad situation now. I think it's going to get a little bit worse. But, I'm, but I do believe it'll get better. It's just right now, you've you got 15,000 expected uh, asylum seekers coming in. It's nothing but a, um, but a crisis at this point. And could you define the crisis for us? In other words, how is this going to play out? Who's it going to hurt? So I'll give you an example. Like Orange County, I got 186. The local police department, town of Newburgh, has at least five trespassing complaints from these individuals. They're not from here. They have no ID. They walk around with a lanyard on with a barcode on it. And if you're sending these folks, whether they're single men, which we got here, or married couples or families, you got to do better than that. That's Steve Newhouse, Republican Orange County Executive, speaking with Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Chartong. 
You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. The New York State Department of Environmental Conservation held a public meeting last week to provide an overview of the creation of a visitor use management plan being developed for the High Peaks and the Catterskill Clove area of the Catskills. The Legislative Gazette's Pat Bradley with more. The New York Department of Environmental Conservation is creating a visitor use management plan to address impacts on the forest preserves due to, quote, the proliferation and expansion of user-created informal trails on formerly trailless, unquote, areas. The DEC is working with OTAC Incorporated, which specializes in visitor use planning and management to create a plan for the Adirondack High Peaks and Catskills. The agency held a public meeting in Saranac Lake this week to provide foundational information and increase public understanding of the goals and timeline and how the project will be applied in the High Peaks. Ross Strategic Senior Associate Susan Heyman is working with OTAC on the DEC project. It's very easy, and I would do it too, uh, in a place that I love, to jump in and say, fix this trail or put this new parking lot here or whatever that might be. And what you'll find tonight is we're going to be asking, well, why would that be? What would that do? How would that enhance or change or improve the visitor experience or the visitor safety? DEC Forest Preserve Management Program Planning Section Chief and Adirondack Coordinator Josh Clegg says the management plan will create sustainable management strategies for the forest preserve areas. We've been talking about visitor use management or VUM for a long time, but this project is the first time we've actually launched one and the High Peaks is the perfect place to do this. And we're actually running a concurrent project down in the Catskills too. This project is being funded by our Environmental Protection Fund, and the reason why we brought on OTAC is because this is the first time DEC has attempted to do a a true visitor-to-use management project, and it's something different for us. Um, It represents a little bit of a paradigm shift for our program, for the department, and we felt like it was really good to get outside help to help us navigate this process. Clegg added that there are similar elements to the DEC's unit management plan process, and public input will be critical to the development of the visitor use management plan. It's a little bit different. You know, being our first time, we're excited. I'm excited about doing this differently and about what it could mean for us, and your participation in this process is critical to it. We're here to collect some foundational information that we like to call it, your ideas about and thoughts on what exists on the ground today, but also about what your desired conditions are for the experience and the safety elements of recreation in the High Peaks Wilderness, specifically the the central area of the High Peaks Wilderness. OTAC consultant Abby Larkin explained that the visitor use management plan will be based on a framework created by the Interagency Visitor Use Management Council, which represents federal agencies managing public lands. This framework is a tool, and it is scalable, and it can be tailored. Um, So we are going to tailor this framework to be specific to this project area's spatial extent, the types of visitor use levels and activities, and our project areas of focus, which are the character and quality of the visitor experience, the social conditions, and public safety concerns. 
the first step is to establish desired conditions. What do we want this place to be like? What kind of experience do we want this place to provide? And then that is the foundation for everything else that we will do in this project and will inform future decisions that DEC will make. The DEC also held a meeting this week in Hunter, New York, to provide an overview of the project for the Catskill region. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Pat Bradley. A newly restored monument honoring former President Jimmy Carter was recently unveiled in Rotterdam. The Legislative Gazette's Dave Lucas was there and filed this report. Oh, say can you see by the dawn's early light. Jimmy and Rosalind Carter made their home in apartment 7 of building 471 of a military housing complex in Rotterdam from October 1952 until October 1953. In the early 1950s, Jimmy Carter was a lieutenant in the U.S. Navy, studying nuclear physics at nearby Union College, according to Schenectady City historian Chris Leonard. After graduating from the Naval Academy, uh, later to be President Carter, uh, was tapped by uh, Admiral Hyman Rickover, who was the father of the nuclear Navy, to go specifically to uh, Schenectady to, to Union College and to be part of the uh, Noah's Atomic Power Labs in West Milton, which would later become the uh, Kenneth Kesselring site. While he was in Schenectady, he was taking classes at Union College. Uh, he was um, training NCOs, and he was working on the engine and in the preparations for the second nuclear submarine, the Seawolf, that was being planned. Vietnam veteran Bill Frank. I understand that while he was here, there was a, um, a near meltdown up in Canada of a nuclear plant, and he was called upon to go up there and work as a team member um, to help uh, fix one of the, um, the rods that were close to melting down. And I guess um, it was quite a group that would kind of un unscrew the, the bolts, take the one bad unit out and put a new one in. And each one can only spend up to 90 seconds while they did it. And I understand he worked 89 seconds. And uh, that stayed with him, the, the effects of just that uh, 89 seconds for about six months. He wasn't feeling, uh, you know, 100%. But uh, when I found out about he and Rosalind uh, Carter being here, I, I was just floored and very impressed. And I, another thing that I had heard is um, while he was here, his, his dad had passed away, and that's when he left the Navy to go back to Plains, Georgia to work the peanut farm. So uh, his naval career was cut short. At an unknown point in time, a plaque commemorating President and Mrs. Carter's time living in Rotterdam was installed at the former military housing complex, now called Maple Pine Manor. Over the years, the monument fell into disrepair, a fact that didn't go unnoticed by AJS Masonry President Andrew Sachetti, who got in touch with New York State Assemblyman Angelo Santa Barbara. I contacted Angelo when I saw the uh, damage done to the monument, which I think is weathered over the years. I don't think it happened that at one time. I just think over the years, masonry does deteriorate. 
Uh, we specialize in historic restoration. And um, I wanted to do this without anybody's knowledge. And I asked him how to do that. He said, I'll get back to you. And here we are today. So uh, there's not much more I can add for all the nice words that were added. I uh, recently spoken about President Carter, except that uh, it's nice to give back to a human being who did so much for the community. It's a little bit of work for us. It's not a big job, but it me it's meaningful. And uh, I feel proud to be a part of it. Santa Barbara said to know that Jimmy Carter lived in Rotterdam is underscored by the monument, which stands to preserve that small piece of history. It's important that we preserve this, this monument for future generations also to know uh, the work of Jimmy Carter, to know that he called Rotterdam home at one time. Uh, and uh, I think that's a, it's a reason for us to, to celebrate as a community that we have a piece of that history here with us. Carter, who is now 98, served one term as president from 1977 to 1981. He entered hospice care at his home in Georgia earlier this year. For photos of the refurbished monument, go to WAMC.org. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Dave Lucas. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. A 12-person jury deliberated this week on Tuesday and Wednesday, before finding prestige limousine operator Nauman Hussein guilty of 20 counts, one for each victim killed in the October 2018 crash. Investigators say the limo that lost its brakes traveled at more than 100 miles per hour before crashing in a store parking lot at the bottom of a steep hill. The prosecution argued Hussein intentionally failed to follow vehicle maintenance regulations and had not replaced the limo's brakes. Hussein's defense said the 33-year-old tried to maintain the limo and relied on what he was told by a repair shop. Management at Mavis Discount Tire in Saratoga Springs admitted during the trial to falsifying invoices for brake work on the limo. The trial came after a judge threw out a 2021 plea deal where Hussein pleaded guilty to 20 counts of criminally negligent homicide in exchange for probation and community service. He now faces up to 15 years in prison. The families of the crash victims over the last four and a half years have been vocal advocates for limousine safety reforms at the state and federal level. Kevin Cushing, who lost his son Patrick in the crash, served on New York's Stretch Limousine Passenger Safety Task Force. Minutes after leaving court, Lucas Willard spoke to Cushing about the verdict. We're pretty exhilarated with the fact that, number one, we, we got a conviction, and we got a conviction on the count of manslaughter as opposed to criminally negligent homicide. Um, we weren't really sure going into jury deliberations which way the jury would go, and we couldn't be more pleased that they picked the... Uh, bigger charge. If you don't mind me rewinding a little bit, how did you feel going into this trial just a couple of weeks ago? Well, I think the very fact that there was going to be a trial as opposed to the previous plea deal was, you know, it was great news for us. We were at least going to be heard through, um, through a trial and through witnesses about what happened, how it happened, uh, and who was responsible for it. So, we at least felt that there was a chance for some some justice. So what, you know, in reality, I don't think any of the family members believe there can be real justice when you lose a loved one, and there were 20 lost loved ones in this accident. I was in court the day that the plea deal was reached, and I know how shocked and disappointed many of the victims' families were 
at that moment. How does that compare to today with today's decision? It's it was a total opposite feeling. I mean, it was an empty, sick feeling the original plea deal. And today, today, I think there was pure joy that that finally there's going to be some justice and the defendant's going to have to pay a price for his actions. We're, we're thrilled with that. And um, I, I think I, I can't speak for everyone, but I think we're, we're really happy that the trial is finished and, uh, and justice has been served. Did you stay in communication with the other families throughout this trial? Did you speak with them during this process? We, we've all stayed in touch over the last four and a half plus years. Um, I mean, we're, we're kind of like a different kind of family because we share, you know, the tragedy. And things happen to people during the course of those four and a half years, and they need to be propped up by, by friends and people, you know, that have, have a shared experience with them. So yes, I and all of, all pretty much all of the family members have stayed together through you know messaging and phone calls and uh, on occasions even getting together personally. How was it sitting in that courtroom over the last couple of weeks? Uh, what was going through your head? Well, I mean, the hearing, I mean, reading about the evidence and then hearing the evidence at the trial, it's a bit more surreal and and it's real. And, you know, you're listening to it, you're watching it being presented, you're looking at the jurors, you know what you're feeling about how, what the evidence is all about, and you're hoping they're hearing it the same way. Um, there wasn't a defense put on by the defendant. So really, all we heard was the evidence put into uh, the record that showed that they believed that the defendant was guilty of of manslaughter and or uh, criminally negligent homicide. So it was, uh, I mean, it wasn't great to hear the evidence, but in hearing it, we felt who can hear this and not sense that punishment is in order for those actions. Did the jury deliberation process come sooner than you expected? Yeah, it did. Uh, they really only, it was about two hours yesterday tops and pretty much half a day today. And there was quite a bit of evidence that was put into uh, the record by the prosecution. And um, I mean, I wasn't surprised that we got a verdict today, but I wouldn't have been surprised if we didn't get something uh, tomorrow or the following day. I mean, there was a lot to digest. Um, the jurors seemed to be very attentive during the entire process. And, uh, you know, I'm thankful for their service. I'm thankful for their decision-making. I've spoken to Times Union reporter Larry Rulison, who's covered this closely, and he spoke about how the judge during this trial um, did not want uh, graphic photos or descriptions during this case. Was that a relief to you? Oh, very much so, um, because I made a commitment to myself and Know, really just myself, that I wanted to attend trial every day, knowing full well that if all the evidence was presented, there was going to be some very, very difficult things to hear and even more difficult things to see. Uh, I, I was not looking forward to that, and I was trying to figure out a way that I wouldn't have to subject myself to that kind of horror. Uh, as it turned out, they stipulated much of that evidence, both the defense and the um, prosecution, 
and, and I'm grateful, and I think every family member is grateful that we didn't have to be put through that, you know, horrible situation to see, you know, unfortunately, the, the scene and the gory details that, that surrounded that scene. Nevertheless, was it difficult to hear the arguments throughout the trial? Of course. Uh, you know, it's obviously we sit on one side of the uh, courtroom and the, and the defense sits on the other side of the courtroom. And, I mean, it's it's not a sporting event by any stretch. It's, it's people's lives that are really at stake here. It's important, and it needs to be done right. And I can't say enough about the judge. He held a very, very efficient trial. Uh, we thought he was fair in his rulings. Uh, Judge Lynch is to be commended for how he handled that trial for, I think, both the prosecution and the defense. I, I thought he did an absolutely great job. We are speaking just minutes, really, after the verdict was issued. But did you speak with any of the other families upon the verdict's delivery or immediately afterward? Oh, we, I think I hugged that. My wife and I hugged pretty much every family member that was there. Uh, we cried together. We hugged together. We, we smiled, cried. Every emotion you can possibly think of was evident in that courtroom. And, uh, and, and we're going to be back there in two weeks for uh, the penalty phase. The sentencing is scheduled for May 31st. Um, but after the sentencing is completed, do you intend to remain an advocate for limo safety laws at both the state and federal level? I'm still on, on the state limousine safety committee task force. Uh, we haven't been meeting. Uh, I, I think we probably should be meeting, but I, I didn't complain too loudly because I was pretty busy with the trial and such. Um, but going forward, absolutely. I, you know, both my wife and I want to be an advocate for limousine safety. And next, we're, and we're really going to go after grieving families, which is, again, going through the legislature. I believe it's passed by the Senate, and it's, I think it's on the agenda for the Assembly this week. Um, we think it's important that legislation gets passed. That's the Grieving Families Act. That's correct. That's Kevin Cushing, who lost his son Patrick in the 2018 Schoharie Limo tragedy. He spoke with the Legislative Gazette's Lucas Willard. And that about does it for this week's show. The Legislative Gazette is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. Our executive producer is Alan Chartalk. We had help from the New York State Public Radio Network. You can listen to the Legislative Gazette anytime at wamcpodcast.org or anywhere you get your podcast. Look for program number 2320. And join us again next week at this same time for more news on New York State government and politics. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm David Gustina.